What you're about to hear is part two of a multi-part series on terrorism and performance. The first episode that we uh, released on this series was about a month ago, it was called The Name of Terrorism. Now these episodes are not sequential, so you don't need to have heard that episode to understand this one, but if you like this episode then I would advise perhaps going back and looking at um, the earlier episode called The Name of Terrorism. Welcome to Stage Blather, a weekly podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 12, Death and the Machine. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar what I want to talk about in this episode is some of the ways in which technology has informed and shaped the kind of terroristic violence that exists in the modern world. And I want to focus particularly on the phenomenon of the accident. Before I get to that though, of course, first of all, I have to define my terms. Technology. What do we mean by technology? Um, broadly, I'd say that this is a term that we give to mechanical processes or objects that help us to achieve certain goals. So if you take the example of food, you need to eat so you grow food and you harvest food. The process of harvesting is difficult and time consuming and so as a species you then develop technologies to help with that process and this produces everything from the scythe to the plough to the spinning jenny to the threshing machine, eventually the combine harvester. All of these are technologies that are produced to help with harvesting. So technology if we think about it in, the, in these terms, is initially a prosthesis, something artificial that we develop to help us achieve our desires, our ambitions, our objectives. But over time, of course, technological developments also produce new desires, new ambitions, and new objectives themselves. If you think about it, people so think about the, the example of um, mobile phones and internet and so on, and this notion of being connected to one another that we are obsessed with in the modern world. A hundred years ago, people did not need or desire to be connected to one another in the same way that we do now. In, in addition, they also did not uh, desire to travel or to see the world on, you know, or to go to a hot place. Uh, if you're thinking people, people who live in Britain every year, the way that we do now, and this is because um, air travel and so on have made it easier for us to get to warmer places, and so the desire to be in a warmer place has arisen. Um, and other things, I mean, I was thinking maybe diets, you think of the way in which we have developed uh, our understanding of the body and the way in which we've, we've developed, um, you know, ever more sophisticated foods and so on, we now recognise that there are certain things that we... Uh, should eat and things that we should not eat and things that we should drink things that we should not drink and so on and this is all to do with the ways in which technology has informed and shaped and changed our desires and our ambitions and our objectives now technological developments from this perspective can provide us with appetites that we never had before as a consequence we can say that technological developments shape and create or help create the human animal and the world in which that animal exists but if we say this, then there is another thing that we can also say, which is that technology changes the way that we die. Now, I could spend every future episode of this podcast on that statement. I could probably spend the rest of my career on that statement, just thinking about that one statement, technology changes the way that we die, because the implications of that are vast and complex. But I want to focus on three different perspectives on that statement for this episode. The first perspective is perhaps the most obvious. Technology changes the way that we die by postponing death or prolonging life. Um, 
And a, the clearest example of that I can think of is uh, through medicine. Now, when I was 10, I read a book called Goodnight, Mr. Tom by Michelle Nagorian, which is a, a novel set during the Second World War. And it was a, a brilliant book. And I read it, I think, six times back to back because I was that kind of child. But there was a point in it where a man who's in his 60s, and this book was set in the 1940s, so a man who's in his 60s recalled watching his wife and son die from scarlet fever. And the sentence was he watched uh, helplessly as the familiar flush spread across their faces. And I found that really strange because I had recently had scarlet fever and so, but I'd obviously been given medication and had recovered. But I was suddenly, I think probably for the first time in my life, made aware of the fact that had I been born in a different generation, then I would be dead by now. Because of medicine, because of you know advances in medical technology and science, we are able to prolong life and postpone death. So technology changes the way that we die. It postpones it in many cases. And not just medicine. We think about things like uh, insulation or warm clothes. We are able to live in environments and places that we otherwise would not be able to live in without the prosthesis of technology. Now, another way that technology changes the way that we die is less positive, and it's in the pragmatics of killing. Over human history, we have developed any number of ways to assist the process of ending somebody else's life. Think of the clubs and the flints and the spears of Cro-Magnon Man and beyond, the swords, the halberds, the crossbows, the um, catapults of medieval civilizations and later and earlier, in fact, and also the gallows or the axe of the executioner. And I've been thinking about executions a lot in my research recently, in public executions, and I want to take a moment to think about the guillotine. Now, the guillotine is, as I'm sure everyone listening to this is aware, um, an apparatus for decapitation that was invented around the time of the French Revolution and certainly became um, popularised, and it's almost a symbol of the French Revolution because it was used to decapitate thousands of people in the time of the Great Terror, which is what immediately followed the revolution. It has an extraordinary success rate, and it enabled the heads of the, the state to kill people, one after another, in a kind of huge, gruesome production line. The heads were collected in baskets. But as well as making executions quick and easy, the guillotine had another function. It made the execution seem inevitable. It takes quite a lot of effort to kill somebody. I mean, if you think about killing somebody with your bare hands, it, it's very difficult. But the guillotine removes any appearance or evidence of effort from the spectacle of killing. If you sentence somebody to death, and you kill them by guillotine, it's just kind of done, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. Which is how the, de the death is then presented. As such, the revolutionaries could convince the people that their way was absolutely the right way by showing people inevitability of death. If the state pronounces something done, then the state wants it to be done immediately, because if it is not done immediately, and if it's not done efficiently, then that starts to reflect badly upon the state. I was thinking about this in terms of Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudis have a particular fondness for decapitations, and they decapitate, as far as I'm aware, um, hundreds of people every year. And the way that they do it is actually very, very public. They will uh, take a, a park, some kind of public space, they'll lay down plastic sheeting, they'll get the condemned, they'll tie their hands behind their backs, and they'll make the condemned kneel down on this plastic sheeting. The condemned will also have been given some sort of drug to um, dope them a bit. And they're decapitated with a sword. The executioner stands behind them, prods them in the back with the sword, so they arch their back and expose their neck, and the executioner then swings the sword and cuts the head off in one go. And it's considered a kind of point of pride that the head is cut off in one go, but it's also considered necessary by the state for the execution to be carried out really efficiently, because that executioner at that point is the voice of the state. Now, the same thing happened with the guillotine. The guillotine became 
uh, the mouthpiece of the state. The state declares that they want somebody to die, and then therefore, therefore they're killed instantly. Now, whether this function of the guillotine was intended or not, this was the effect that it produced. It made death seem inevitable. And this notion of a concealed function, then, of technology gets me onto the third way in which technology helps changes the way that we die, which is the phenomenon of the accident, of an accidental effect. Now, we know what an accident is. That's easy, right? Uh, an accident is the consequences of something that goes wrong and where no deliberate effort was made to make it go wrong. If a machine breaks down and somebody intentionally does it, that's not an accident, that's sabotage. But if a machine breaks down and it's not intentional, then nobody can be blamed. It's just a, a fault in the machine, then it's an accident. And so the accident actually is quite a, um, a powerful term, because if you can prove something was an accident, then you alleviate guilt of all human participants. But that's thinking about the accident purely from the perspective of human participants. What about if we think about the accident in terms of the technology involved? Now, the philosopher who has spent, I think, more time than anybody else thinking about this notion of the accident from the perspective of technology is a guy called Paul Virilio, who is a French urban sociologist. And one of his most famous quotes is, to invent the sailing vessel or the steamship is to invent the shipwreck. To invent the train is to invent the derailment. To invent the private car is to produce the motorway pileup. So basically, any technological advance, according to Virilio, is simultaneously an advance of the accident. Not only an advance, in fact, because, because technological developments always speed up our lives in some way. You know, they make things easier, they make things faster, they, make things, they, they provide new terrain to traverse, they, they, they excite or they invent new appetites. So therefore, any technological advance is also a speeding up of the accident. So technology, although it adva advances you know, human society, it also advances the speed and the frequency of the accident and the power of the accident. And by continuing to pursue technological advancement for its own sake, you therefore increase um, the ways in which technology can destroy you. And in some ways, although you know, this sounds quite doom-laden, but actually I think we recognize this at some level because culture often seizes upon technological advancements in order to um, predict or to identify the things that can happen when they go wrong. So think about the 1980s and all of those sci-fi high-tech nightmares that were produced like the Terminator and Robocop and so on. And this was really when the internet was in its infancy or when computerization was in its infancy. Or what about the 60s and the 70s when you had all of these um, films about aliens and so on, alien invasions, and this is when space travel was just taking its first stumbling steps. You can push this back even further and think about the, the fin de siècle novels of somebody like E.M. Foster, whose fiction is stuffed with terrified references to the motor car in the, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when the motor car was starting to take off, and what the motor car would do or could do to human society. Something about technology makes us nervous. So, from this perspective then, technology changes the way that we die by increasing the power of the accident and the frequency of the accident. And it might help to think, therefore, of the accident as a kind of unconscious counterpart to technological advance. You think you're inventing uh, a thousand-seater plane, but you're actually inventing, or also inventing, a new way for a thousand people to die. And let's stick with the idea of the plane for a moment. Because, of course, you know, the, 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 the accident in the aeroplane immediately conjures up the, sp the spectacle of 9-11. Now, I was uh, 16 um, on September the, the, the 11th, 2001, my first day at college, and I remember getting into the the car uh, at the end of the day and turning the radio was on and hearing this stuff. And from that point onwards, the aeroplane has never been the same for me and for most people. Because 
up until that point, there had been plane jackings and there had been accidents and so on, but not many of them, and certainly not um, recorded and broadcast in the same way as the attacks on 9-11 were recorded and broadcast. So there was two things that happened that day. There was the the the, the crash of the planes, which I'll talk about in a second, but there was also the way in which the, the, the crashes were recorded and the way in which they were distributed. And these two things combined changed the world. George Bush Jr. claimed that they would. The journalist Robert, Robert Fisk said he wouldn't let Al-Qaeda change the world, but they did because they changed the way that we see the airplanes. They changed... Uh, the ways in which terrorist factions could use contemporary technology, mundane contemporary technology, and they also changed a whole lot of other things. Now, just before I get into this, to call the attacks on 9-11 an accident is quite difficult, um, because obviously they were planned attacks. So how can we call them an accident? Well, okay, yes, they were planned attacks, of course, but those attacks exploited unseen design flaws in the construction of the airplane. So for that reason, we can also see them as accidents, because people did not intend for these attacks to happen, and yet these attacks were made possible by things that people designed. Nobody, when you know, when they, they were thinking, when they were designing these huge, beautiful machines that could carry hundreds of people into the sky, they didn't think, well, what we're doing is we're giving an opportunity to people, uh, a few men armed with razor blades, to transform that machine into a weapon, a weapon capable of destroying buildings and killing thousands of people. But that's what was built. The unconscious accident was always lurking within the airplane. It just needed the wrong people to discover the accident and exploit it. But blowing up the buildings, like I said, was only half of the equation. So they weaponized the airplanes and they blew up the buildings. But something else happened at, at that time as well. Around you know, the, to 2001, the practice of building video cameras into mobile phones had just started to become really popular. And the internet also, although it was nothing like what it is today, at that point had taken off in a huge way and provided unprecedented opportunities for sharing homemade videos and suddenly everybody was a walking transmitter capable of recording and distributing um, footage and therefore in this case terrorist messages uh, and broadcasting them to the entire world and terrorism is all about the spectacle as I mentioned in the previous episode on terrorism so what happened on 9-11 was a few men armed with very rudimentary weapons positioned themselves so that their act of violence could create shockwaves that resonated around the world and are still being felt. That's the power of the accident, or that's the power that can be unleashed through the accident. People asked Paul Virilio after 9-11 what he thought of it. He said that he was not surprised. Now, let's think about the terrorists that conducted you know, the 9-11 attacks. At the, at the time, September 2001, militant Islam was undergoing a, a big series of seismic shifts at that point, when we still had the Taliban, and we still have the Taliban today, they're still active in Afghanistan and very powerful, but the Taliban are kind of Stone Age, really. Um, they abjure contemporary technology. They, they see it as forbidden under their religion, and they, they will eradicate it wherever they can. But Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda um, represented a new development in uh, fundamentalist Islamic terrorism. They kind of embraced technology. You know, They embraced planes, mobile phones, and the internet, and they recognized the power of technology for producing attacks and also for spreading around their message. They also demonstrated a very clear understanding of the ways in which contemporary Western society worked, because we're a world hooked on images. And so what bin Laden did was give us an image. Now, the administration of, of George Bush Jr. recognized what, what bin Laden had done in creating this image, and they tried very hard to beat him at his own game. When they bombed Baghdad a couple of years later, um, they had CNN film the whole thing and broadcast it live because they wanted to try to create a spectacle of American might that could combat the 
spectacle of um, America being attacked that had happened on 9-11, but they didn't succeed because the bombing of Baghdad was not as gripping, not as surprising, not as shocking an image as of the two towers going down. The images that the Bush, Bush administration uh, produced that were uh, the, had the most impact were ironically the ones that they didn't want us to see, which were the images of the torture and murder of prisoners in the Abu Ghraib detention facility in occupied Iraq. Um, in fact, they've actually uh, on that note, there are still plenty of images from uh, from that leak that have still been suppressed, which are the images of women being tortured and killed, um, which were suppressed by Bush and later by President Obama because they said that uh, American servicemen and women's lives would be put in jeopardy if these images were ever released. So that's kind of what Bin Laden did. But technology moves, as we know, it moves quickly, it accelerates. And so what's you know contemporary today, tomorrow is obsolete. And Bin Laden was very quickly obsolete. His, his particular brand of terrorism was very quickly out of date. And the reason for this is because the spectacle he produced in 9-11, although it was, or, or because it was so big, because it was so shocking, it couldn't be done again. Once you do that kind of attack, you change the world. You change the way in which America considers, well, in fact, the way in which everybody really considers uh, safety on air travel and that kind of thing. So suddenly there's all kind of checks put in place. And of course, uh, in, a, in a much more holistic sense, you change public perception of Islam. Um, in the United States and elsewhere in, in uh, Western Europe and of course all around the world, which is exactly what Bin Laden wanted. He wanted to drive a wedge between um, Islam and the rest of the world as he saw it. Um, and it makes attacks like the ones that happened on 9-11 very different. You have to change, you have to do different things. But Bin Laden was unable to do that because of course he then had to go into hiding and so on. So as his star was waning on the world stage, up jumps a guy called Abu Musab al-Zakawi. Now, Zakawi was a tattooed street thug from Jordan, who very unlikely um, character to end up being an emir, but he did become an emir. He became um, uh, officially recognized by bin Laden as the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq um, in the years following 9-11. And it was Zakawi who started filming beheadings. He beheaded the British civil engineer Ken Bigley and the American businessman Nick Berg in 2004 and filmed the beheadings before sharing them on social media. Now this is the guy who really paved the way for ISIS. He dressed up his victims in orange jumpsuits. He um, edited not particularly well, but he did edit, edit footage together and he's, he recognized the power of social media sharing platforms for small or comparatively smaller acts of violence that could then be shared on the internet and could create a huge impact. Um, and another accident of technology happened at pretty much the same time. YouTube was launched in 2005, and YouTube, for the first you know years of this this kind of stuff happening, was the most powerful and important tool for sharing messages of terrorism out of the Middle East. These days it's things like WhatsApp and Snapchat because YouTube is, uh, I think, better at controlling its output, but they still do manage to, um, you know, um, people working for IS still do put up stuff on YouTube and it's there for a long, well, it's there for a while before it gets taken down. So you can see where this is going. Zakawi hit upon a method of terroristic violence that in comparison to the, the, the huge complex planning of 9-11 was quick, was uncomplicated, and was incredibly powerful. All you needed was a few people with some technological know-how. You needed somebody willing to decapitate another human being on film. You needed a victim. And that was it. Commit your act of murder, uh, film it, upload it to the internet, and watch it go viral. And just like Bin Laden, therefore, Zakawi showed a very, very shrewd and terrifying grasp of the way in which contemporary uh, society and contemporary technology function. Now, just as an aside, Zakawi's dead now, and the, the, the story of his death is also to do with an accident of technology, and it's a bit like something from a Chris Morris film. 
um, 2006, he made a film showing himself brandishing a, uh, an assault rifle somewhere in Iraq. And uh, he then put it online. And the American military analysts saw this video, what, looked at the background, figured out where he was, and dropped two 500-pound bombs on his hiding place. They killed five other people in the uh, process. And all of this, so this kind of development of technology, this um, evolution of, of terrorist factions in the Middle East, then paves the way for ISIS. And ISIS is a, a very, compared to the Taliban, they're, they're basically not even the same species anymore. These are, uh, this is an organization that seeks out technological specialists and recruits them, that has a dedicated propaganda wing, which might just be one guy with a laptop, but they do have a dedicated propaganda wing. They employ hackers, and for a while they made a lot of their money out of um, hacking and identity theft. They make their own films too, of course, and we know this, even if we haven't seen them, and I hope most of you haven't. Um, they do make their own films, and they spread, and they're very good at spreading their message um, all over the world. But that's not the only way that they exploit the hidden accidents of technology to suit their own purposes. They also are very good at inciting violence elsewhere in the world by converting people to their cause and then encouraging them to go and commit atrocities in their name. Now we call this process radicalization, although increasingly it seems that the word radicalization is being divorced from people embracing the tenets of radical Islam, and it's more to do with a willingness to commit murder in the name of the organization Islamic State. I've spoken about this before in the episode on uh, um, the name of terrorism. If you kill somebody, you're a murderer. But if you kill somebody in the name of ISIS, or if you kill somebody and ISIS is able to claim the act of murder that you committed and convince people that it is somehow to do with them, then that changes the nature of the murder and repositions that murder within a much bigger conflict. It also transforms the murderer into a terrorist. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen, again, a rash of high-profile killings across Europe, and some of them have been attributed to and claimed by Islamic State. Some of them have not. There was one, the, the, Boris Johnson, the new foreign secretary, got into trouble when he declared that the actions of Ali Somboli, who was a, an 18-year-old boy who killed nine people and then himself in a McDonald's in Munich on the 24th of July, uh, Johnson said that he was part of the cancer of terrorism spreading out of the Middle East. Now, as it turns out, Somboli was in fact not remotely interested in radical Islam. Um, he was more interested in the kind of neo-Nazi propaganda um, which was put out by Anders Breivik, who was the guy who went and murdered 77 people, most of them teenagers, in Oslo in 2011. And therefore, Somboli, like Breivik, was denied the moniker terrorist in the media. And again, I talked about this before, that the importance of the name of terrorism. As far as uh, the press is concerned, Somboli is not a terrorist. And the reason he's not a terrorist is because terrorism seems to be um, inseparable from radical Islam at the moment. If he's not, not part of radical Islam, then he's not a terrorist. He's a murderer. But really, if you look at the... the, the the reports of, of, of Somboli and, and his mutation from maladjusted youth to murderer, they don't sound dissimilar from a lot of the people who do end up associated with Islamic State. He, was, he made use of published online material, of which there is a lot, detailing uh, high-profile killings. He blurred the lines of virtual violence and, in computer games and that violence that occurs in real life. And this is something that's very significant. I don't believe that playing computer games makes you a violent person, but Islamic State... Um, 
has demonstrated that you can use video games as a way of inciting violence. They've got this uh, game, or they, hopefully it's not there anymore, but there was an online game called Clashing of Swords, which was a kind of cracked version of Grand Theft Auto. And the, uh, it was available for people around the world to play, and you played uh, as an Islamic State militant running around killing Kufar with... Um, uh, assault rifles, and it was a way of kind of preparing and training people for the uh, what would happen when they eventually got to Syria. They also have posters that are mocked up uh, Call of Duty posters, which have militants on them that say, this is our Call of Duty. So, although I don't believe that video games make people violent, you, it, it has been recently shown that you can use violent video games as a way of encouraging broader violence, and this seems to be what happened with Somboli. Um, and Somboli, what, you know, he... Somboli... The way he differs from these killers, from the people who have killed in the name of ISIS or who have been associated with ISIS, is that his actions do not resonate as loudly because he's not being called a terrorist. They cause shock, they cause um, chaos, they cause pandemonium, they cause grief in the families and the friends of people who die. But this event will be forgotten or it will not be remembered as widely as those acts like 9-11, like the attacks in Paris last year, like the attacks in Nice more recently that have been associated with Islamic State because terrorism amplifies the message of killing. Now, in the past couple of weeks, France has seen two high-profile murderous events. The first, as I've just mentioned, was on the 10th of July when Mohamed Boulel drove a truck into a crowd of revelers in Nice on it was Bastille Day, they were all outside, and before getting outside of the truck and opening fire and killing more people, uh, in all he killed 84 people before he was eventually killed. The second happened um, three days ago, uh, Tuesday the 26th of July, 9.43 local time, when two men ran into a Catholic church in Normandy brandishing knives and uh, slit the throat of Jacques Hamel, a, an 84-year-old priest, and, and they filmed it too, and they held four other people hostage while they were doing it. They were eventually killed uh, by police. Now, these two events have prompted the French president, François Hollande, to declare that France is at war with ISIS. This is what the effects of terrorism can have. And it's, the effect, it's an effect that ISIS want. They want to be at war. They have, there's an apocalyptic element to their belief structure which states that uh, if they can get the armies of the infidel to face them in a place called Dabiq and they'll bring about the end of the world, but a particular, you know, an end of the world that fits with their particular interpretation of Islam. Um, I'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. Now, the, the boys that killed this priest, one of them was known to security services and he was under surveillance for the majority of his waking moments um, for previous uh, convictions of conspiracy to commit acts of terror, uh, although he had a certain amount of time every day when he did, was not under surveillance and this is the time that, that he used to kill the priest. Even so, we're not talking about people that have direct contact with IS. We're talking about isolated people who've taken inspiration remotely through accidents afforded by contemporary technology. When people invented the internet, they didn't imagine that it would be a tool for the spreading of murderous intent. When people launched YouTube, they didn't imagine that it would be a tool for the spreading of violent propaganda that would encourage and incite further acts of violence. And yet, nevertheless, this is what happens. When people, you know, when people buy computers for their children and put them in their bedrooms, they don't imagine that they are installing a mouthpiece for murderers to speak directly to their children, and yet this is what happens in some cases. Now let's start with the attack in Nice. Um, there are clear parallels here with what happened in 9-11 in terms of the weaponization of public transport. Trucks are commonplace. They're easy to get hold of, they raise no suspicion in and of themselves, They uh, their presence at public gatherings is unremarkable, in fact it's often required. 
but in the wrong hands, a truck is a huge object capable of wreaking an extraordinary level of havoc and violence. And IS have been telling people for over two years now to kill people with their cars. Most of us can't, I imagine, can't get hold of guns particularly easily. Uh, although, you know, we'll, we'll skip the conversation about the United States and gun control laws. But it is relatively easy to get your hands on a car. And a car can be, in the wrong hands, turned into a very effective weapon. Now, Bulel sounds like a strange case. He was... Uh, a divorcee with three children. He was born in Tunisia, but he was living in France and working in France. He was a petty criminal who'd served short spells in prison, but he helped his neighbours out with physically exerting tasks, and he wasn't religious. It's the kind of profile that you'd expect to see maybe in accompanying, you know, a person who's gone crazy and shot up a supermarket. People then pick over the details and say, well, what was it about his character that made him want to go and do this? But, of course, because ISIS claimed the attack after it happened... Boulel has now been tied to that organisation and he's now been folded into the greater corpus of violence that constitutes the, the attacks that have been levelled against France in the past 18 months. So essentially, the online framing of this attack after it happened has repositioned and amplified the significance of that the, the attack and has then is one of the things that, that uh, provokes Hollande into declaring war on ISIS. This is something that could only happen with social media with the help of social media and the networks of distribution, distribution that are afforded to images and videos that people who were present at the time were capable of making. And the news was full of these images and videos the next day. And of course, because of this, that attack is now available to IS as a tool for recruitment and intimidation. They are going to use it. It was a human crime, but it was made famous and it will continue to be made famous through the accident of technology. Now, there was a, the French did respond in a, a wonderful way to, to ISIS's claiming of this attack by saying, but there was a hashtag which is ISIS claims, and they said, oh, ISIS will claim anything these days, and they've got like, ISIS claims our defeat at Euro 2016, ISIS claims the blanket that I lost when I was six, ISIS claims the socks that disappear at the back of the washing machine, ISIS claims Brexit and Boris, trying to use humour to counteract the... Um, manipulation of the attacks by ISIS. They didn't succeed, but I think it was an admirable effort. Now, the murder of Jacques Hamel was different. These were two teenage boys, one of whom, as I've said, um, has uh, was known to security services and has been confirmed as having links with Islamic State. Um, although not, uh, he was not like, he's not somebody that's from Syria or, or Iraq or from occupied territory, not having like physical links, but um, he has uh, links via the internet. The attack fulfills the strategies of provocation that ISIS likes. They want to be at war, as I said. Um, and the symbolism of the death is, is manifest. The slaughtering of the priest as if he was a sacrificial lamb, um, the attack on Catholicism, is an attempt to push for some kind of war between religions. The Pope, bless him, has come out and said that there is a war, but it's not between religions. It's between people who want to harm others and everybody else which I think is a very sensible way of, of trying to tackle this problem. What's also notable is that footage of Hamel's execution has not yet, as far as I know, leaked onto the internet, which m might indicate that the killers have been, uh, you know, they were shot by the police, that they were unable to upload the footage before they were killed. They did perform a, a kind of, apparently, a sermon in Arabic after they killed him, which, uh, again, the symbolism is blunt and very cliche and very horrible. But the photos and the videos that we've got in response to this attack are all of Hamel 
um, in earlier life, ministering to congregations and so on. They're not of the violent activist killing, which I think is a huge step forward. And even better, a lot of the, the French media organizations have now said that they're not going to publish the names or the images of the people who commit these acts of violence for fear that they might then be used to encourage other people to commit acts of violence, which is, I think, I'm, I'm relieved and amazed that somebody's finally done this because Lionel Shriver, the novelist that wrote We Need to Talk About Kevin, was calling for this 10 years ago, saying that the American media needs to stop showing the photographs and images and, and names of, of people that commit school shootings because they just become heroes then. And it seems that a lot of the French media are now picking up on this. Um, but... The images of Hamel in his life are still being used as propaganda. It needs to be um, acknowledged that they are not, it's not unpolitical because they are now being used by politicians like Manuel Valls, like Francois Hollande, to shore up their narratives of militaristic reprisal. We're going to go to war against ISIS. Here's a video of a priest. He was killed by people who claim allegiance to ISIS. Give us your support. And they'll get it too. Valls was booed when he went to Nice shortly after the attacks, because people believed that the state of emergency that has now been extended, I've forgotten, I think four times now, is not doing enough to prevent these kind of attacks. So the French were actually clamouring for more reductions of civil liberties in order to try to prevent terrorism attacks. Right, I'm going to stop there. Um, there will be more episodes on terrorism in the future. Uh, not for a while, but I'll talk about that in a second. But um, that was my episode on... On, on terrorism uh, and death and the accident. Thank you for listening. I, I hope you've got something out of this episode. If you've got any comments or queries or issues, please contact me either through uh, Stage Brother on Facebook or as at Sam Haddo on Twitter. Uh, the theme song was provided by Polly Edwards. Her website is brokepoet.com and I am indebted as always to Kuldeep Panasar for his help and advice. If you like this, please check out State of the Theory podcast. And there's also a new vlog that's just been started by my friend and colleague Paul Whitman, um, who's a lecturer in English at the University of Derby. Who's, uh, and it, the, the vlog is called uh, Dr. Paul Whitman's Top Tips for Literature and it's about literary study and I'll, I'll put a link on Facebook um, now next week I'm going to go back to theatre and I'm actually going to talk about theatrical productions because it's the Edinburgh Fringe so we're going to have I think a good four weeks of discussions of uh, theatre I've got tickets to go and see uh, Tim Crouch's Adler and Gibb at Summer Hall so we might be talking about Tim Crouch not sure yet but I promise that there'll be some well hmm I can't, no, I'm not going to promise because I might change my mind. I think I'll be talking about actual theatrical productions. Uh, until then, thanks for listening and have good days all. So a flag on your back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day. Do you realize kings do have a price they can't pay?